Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 37 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday, October the 13th. Black Friday, Leon. Indeed it is. And this week we're talking with Dean Foley. That's right. Dean Foley is going to be talking to us all about the Baramayel, which is Australia's Indigenous Business Accelerator. And he's going to be talking to us all about Indigenous business. It would be very interesting. And then we have a chat with economist Stephen Kukoulos. That's right, all about Australia's growth prospect. Yeah, which may or may not be prospect at all, but let's see. Anyway, let's hear from Dean Foley. Dean Foley, uh, you've been nominated for an award uh, with the Dig- Indigenous Digital Excellence Awards. Um, uh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for having me on your show. Well, tell us about what your what your business is as an entrepreneur. I got out of the Royal Australian Air Force um, a couple of years ago and I was trying to get into business. My whole strategy was to um, buy an existing business and grow it and uh, hopefully learn a lot to not fail and go on to bigger ventures. Um, but during that time, because uh, my mother's Aboriginal, I'm an Aboriginal man. Um, I found out about these organisations that are supposed to help Indigenous people get into business, and I didn't find them too helpful. So, and I was getting involved with the startup community, so I started running a few entrepreneurial events, and then ended up founding Barriyama, which is Australia's Indigenous Business Accelerator Program. Oh, t- well, tell us about that accelerator program of yours. Yeah, so it was in collaboration with uh, Slingshot, which is a leading corporate accelerator in Australia, and we ran a, a mini um, prototype end of last year, and then from there, it's just been evolving um, for other programs to help develop the Indigenous business ecosystem. So how does it work? A business accelerator. Yeah. Um, you try and identify, I guess, the, the best high growth potential startups um, and then put them in a, an environment where they get mentors, education and early seed capital to really um, help rapidly grow their startups to um, hopefully go, you know, national or international markets. Um, but for us, um, you know, because we're, we're a charity, we're only just getting up and running, um, we're just slowly putting everything together now and just helping build up the ecosystem. But our hope is, you know, in the future we'll have a, a real, really good um, Indigenous business accelerator program that's helping Indigenous entrepreneurs get to the next stage and, and then helping close the gap through um, employment and economic development. So you would have to do a fair bit of uh, mentoring, wouldn't you, of the uh, Indigenous businesses that you come across? Yeah, a lot. Um, and then we've got uh, a lot of successful Indigenous entrepreneurs that are getting on board too to help with the mentoring. For example, um, Trent Young, who's based in Brisbane, owns Young Guns Containers, and they're a, a ship container business that does approximately $40 million in revenue and employs over 300 people. So to, to get you know people that have been there, done it, on board, uh, the very young program to help mentor adds immense value. That's that's quite amazing. I mean, so I mean, what are the characteristics of uh, indigenous businesses? I mean, what, what what kind of sectors are they in for a start? It varies quite a bit. Um, so I guess typically um, a lot of uh, land-based ventures, a lot of like um, indigenous entrepreneurs in arts. Um, uh, consultancy work um, but what I'm seeing um, with the new generation because we've got opportunities now like our parents or grandparents never had like to go to university get an education so there's a lot more um, highly educated and, and motivated indigenous entrepreneurs coming up 
um, that's starting to get into tech, which is, you know, quite varied in uh, the respective, I guess, business ventures that they're trying to go in. For example, one Indigenous entrepreneur originally from Darwin is based uh, in Brisbane, studying at the University of Queensland, is trying to create a marketplace um, for artists, musicians and all that kind of stuff at the moment with his uh with another co-tech founder, which is pretty cool. So do these Indigenous uh, businesses, do they, is there a market, the Indigenous community, or do they have a broader market with the wider community, or how does it work? I mean, there's, again, like it, it varies. There's a, there's a fair few Indigenous community organisations that are focused around, um, you know, issues in their community to help solve it. But again, what I'm seeing with the younger generation is, more global view or more global national view to um, create products or services that cater for um, the majority of people, um, you know, non-Indigenous market instead of um, just trying to focus on the Indigenous market. And the reason why is because obviously the world market is a lot bigger, so the potential to earn and, and create a bigger business is there. And then also, you know, once they become successful uh, by focusing on um, the non-Indigenous markets, obviously they could be in a better position to give back to the community. Dean, there, there are cultural differences, of course. So what are some of the advantages that and differences that Indigenous entrepreneurs bring to the market? Good question. Again, yeah, it does vary quite a bit. I mean, just the same as non-Indigenous, but from from my perspective, I think Indigenous entrepreneurs are generally, I guess, more collaborative and uh, with each other to work together to create businesses. And um, and sometimes we think differently than non-Indigenous entrepreneurs. Um, for example, like I, I've, I've been you know pretty involved with the startup community in Brisbane, and like there's just been a few few. Th- comments um, from successful you know non-indigenous entrepreneurs that are leading leading Australia and the world with their with what they're doing um but you know some of them have written me off uh you know my way of doing things and and how I do things and how I'm getting things up and running but for example I, I applied for a grant got shortlisted went to the interview and they basically written me off and they said oh you know you're not the right person you know um you know what you're doing with very young or never be successful like you know who do you think you are kind of thing and that the panel was you know for non-indigenous you know successful uh, entrepreneurs and business people in their own right but um you know that was just a couple of months ago and then it's funny that you know now i'm one of two um finalists for the entrepreneurship award you know at this indigenous excellence awards in a couple of months so um from my perspective i think you know sometimes you know coming from the community and we just see things differently see opportunities differently and, and execute differently which is to our advantage sometimes so i mean the different way of execution would be that you actually collaborate much more than um, non-indigenous businesses would that be right yeah collaborate and then obviously coming from that community perspective generally we're a lot more yes connected to other people's views and how to do things and what i see sometimes um within the non-indigenous business community especially the startup communities they're very you know focused on you know their self-interest and just trying to make eat money which is you know okay but um I think it's better sometimes to work together with people, partnerships to grow something bigger and then instead of just, you know, being really cutthroat and trying to make a buck. What what are the issues that indigenous entrepreneurs would face compared with non indigenous entrepreneurs? What are the specific issues? Yeah, well, I touched on it a little bit earlier. So I think there's you know, sometimes there's a bit of negative stereotypes with indigenous people still, you know, to these 
to this day. Um, for example, one of the, the leading uh, business accelerators in Australia told us that they didn't believe there was enough you know, quality indig- or Indigenous entrepreneurs to run a real program. And uh, to me, I was a bit you know, taken back with that comment because these guys, you know, even though they're really successful in their own right, they've had nothing to do with the Indigenous community. You know, they don't even help Indigenous entrepreneurs, but you know, they're the first ones to, I guess, voice their opinion on what they think, despite having no experience. Um, just you know, based on their successes, uh, which, yeah, again, it's kind of disheartening, but it shows that arrogance and, I guess, the stereotypes, um, you know, some people have, unfortunately. The other one, from my personal experience, is, you know, you hear all this, um, supposedly, you know, all this money from the government going to, you know, Indigenous people. But, you know, from what I've seen leaving the Air Force and the reason why I started Barry Gummel is because I've seen that most of this money actually goes to government organisations and they're not really doing a good job. Like, like I, even I tried to, you know, get some a little bit of, you know, grant funding to get us up and running. Um, I went through the process and it was just all, you know, pretty much big sham and, and uh, a waste of my time. Like, like literally, I followed the process, um, went to the local office and those guys never got back to me. And then in the application, it said, you know, go to the go to Canberra if it's a national project, which is what Barry Young is. And I ended up filling the application in myself, didn't get any help from them, put into Canberra. And then Canberra told me to go back to Brisbane. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, they told me they couldn't help me despite, you know, already funding non-Indigenous programs that, you know, kind of do what Barry Yama does. Like, so there's all this, you know, billions of dollars of funding and 90% of it's actually gone to government organisations that, you know, are a, a bureaucrat uh, bro- that are fooled with bureaucracy and really slow moving and they're not really making an impact. So for me, that's that's a big challenge too when all this funding's gone to uh, government organisations that aren't doing anything. On the, on the other hand, uh, it seems to me that Indigenous entrepreneurs would have a real niche in the market and they'd be quite distinctive, It'd be something to watch out for. Yeah, definitely, especially because, um, like I touched on before, there's a lot more opportunities now for us to get that education. All the Indigenous entrepreneurs coming up now are highly skilled and motivated to become successful so I think you know it's, it's definitely a, even though indigenous population is only three percent there's a lot of potential and there's a lot of underutilized assets you know land assets and, and community-based assets too that will start to be utilized over the next you know 10, 10 20 years to build economic independence but also you know help Australia's economy grow too. Dean it's been terrific talking to you and uh, we wish you the best of luck. Yeah thanks for having me on Gary and Leon and uh, yeah wish you all the best. Thank you. Very interesting, isn't it, Leon? That's right, absolutely, and it's it's actually a big, growing market in Australia, and it's something we should watch out for. Absolutely. Now, Stephen Kakoulis. Stephen Kakoulis, last week's retail figures were very, very disappointing. What's your view about this? I think a couple of things are happening. Uh, one that we do know already that wages growth is very weak, and that's undermining uh, incomes. And when you're not making much money. Um, you don't have a lot of spare money to spend. So I think that's one thing that's occurring. We also know that uh, around the middle of the year, there were a couple of interest rate hikes outside the cycle of the RBA. The uh, regulatory changes that we saw come through, saw the banks hike their interest rates. That's probably having some cash flow effect on uh, consumers. So that's also having a dampening effect. And I think there's just this general feeling of other prices of things going up, electricity in particular, 
uh, and that's causing people to put more money into that part of their spending and not enough into the retail sector. So, you know, the, the back-to-back falls in retail sales, which is very rare to see in Australia, actually happened. I think it's just a reflection of consumers being under significant financial pressure. So uh, what impact do you think this will have on the GDP peers? Well, we do know that retail spending specifically, so not all of uh, household spending, but retail spending is a little over 20% of GDP. So if you've got a negative in the month of July, a big negative in the month of August, even if there's some rebound in September, and there'll have to be a very hefty rebound, um, we're going to get that part of the economy going backwards, almost certainly in real terms. So if you've got 20% of your economy going backwards, you need the other parts of the economy to be doing pretty well to get anywhere near a you know, 0.7 or 0.8 quarterly GDP result, which of course is what we, we want to see. So a quick look at the numbers, and of course there's a lot, a lot more information to come in over the coming weeks, but it does like 10 a quarter GDP result will be lucky to be 0.5% based partly on the retail sales numbers, but also what we're seeing in some of the international trade numbers, building approvals and these sorts of things, which we also have information on, and they're only just mediocre. So what does that mean for the uh, annual GDP? Well, in a way, we get some, I suppose we call it good news, but because we have a big negative dropping out of the run rate. You might recall that in the September quarter last year, we did have that surprising drop in GDP. So it does mean that the annual growth is likely to be two point something, roughly 2.2, 2.3, something like that. So at face value, it's you know, not horrible. I, I, I think that's probably the best way to look at the economy too. You know, we're not in recession. We're, you know, nothing horrible is going on, but we're just not sustaining that sort of rate of growth that we would like to see to you know, make inroads into unemployment, to uh, uh, to see wages growth starting to pick up again. We're just not growing strongly enough. And I think it's as simple as that. Well, the bottom line is that it's still a long way from the RBA's forecast and the Treasury's forecast of 3% growth, isn't it? Oh, indeed. And in fact, uh, both RBA and Treasury have it going above 3% in 2018-19, so uh, the year after this one. And it could happen, but you would need everything, and I repeat, everything to go right. You'd need the world economy to be really chugging along at a very healthy pace, faster than it is right now. That might happen, although we're seeing a little bit of uncertainty uh, over the Chinese economy and, and even the US to some extent. But you need the world economy to be strong. You'd also need our domestic economy to be really kicking along. So we mentioned consumer spending. That needs to be uh, much higher than it currently is for that sort of growth rate to be sustained, particularly when you've got you know, a, only a moderately positive outlook for business investment. You've only got a moderately positive outlook for the rest of consumer spending. And you also have the export sector perhaps just petering out with the Aussie dollar being, you know, around this level between sort of 75 and 80 cents, which is arguably still a little too high. That becomes very interesting then because, uh, I mean, what kind of GDP numbers do you need for it to start making an impact on unemployment down below Five and a half percent. Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, we haven't had unemployment below five and a half percent for I think we're up to about four and a half or five years now. It's been between five and a half and six, basically, so, and that's quite high. One thing that is interesting in the examination or comparison with other countries around the world is that they've got almost all of them got unemployment rates in the fours. You know, US we saw on Friday night at four point two. The UK's got unemployment at a forty-year low. Uh, we've got. New Zealand with a with a four point something unemployment rate. Germany, yeah. So a lot of our competitors um, or similar countries um, 
have got very low interest rates. And the question is, why Why is that so? Well, they had very easy monetary policy for a decade, and we've got our RBA constrained by its own uh, analysis on housing, saying that it won't cut interest rates any further because they're worried about housing, even though inflation is incredibly low, even though the economy, as we're just discussing, is growing below trend. And um, so in the meantime, we're continuing to muddle because um, our policy settings aren't stimulatory enough. So do you see the any prospect of the RBA cutting rates or is that or is it uh, still on raise rates in 2018? Yeah, certainly on hold. The, the RBA doesn't want to do anything. As I mentioned, they've got to be in their bonnet about housing and a perception that there's some sort of financial risk that they keep talking about or financial stress or something. I've, I've never seen any evidence of it. Anyway, but they're sort of um, banging on about that. So they're not going to be cutting until they get either catastrophic news on the economy, which would obviously be too, too little too late, if you like. But for the moment, I think the RBA is just on hold. They don't need to hike. And I think even some of the most hawkish people after they saw that retail sales number came out and realised that you know rate hikes are not on the agenda. So I, I still think the balance of risks are towards a cut, not a hike. But the RBA mindset is uh, really locking that out. So with the RBA, it's a case of wait and see. I mean, the rest of the world is raising rates and uh, the RBA just seems to be keeping ours on hold. They are. And in the meantime, uh, well, the rest of the world, it's it's, uh, Canada and the US have. But remember that they had either near zero interest rates and or quantitative easing attached to it. We've got nowhere near that. We only had our rate bottom out at 1.5% where it is now. So, But the ECB in in Europe and Bank of Japan and even the Bank of England, even though they're sort of sounding as if they might hike, are certainly not doing anything to that extent at the minute. So in the meantime, our interest rates remain above those of the most of the rest of the world. The Aussie dollar, as I mentioned, is remaining high. It's remaining high just at the exact time when commodity prices are falling. The iron ore price is back into the low 60s as we speak. And so we've got this cycle of the economy, yeah, as I said, doing okay, but certainly not being super robust. And the RBA is just going to sit tight. And, yeah, and for the budget, yeah, we saw the budget update a few weeks ago. A fair result, you know, the budget deficit's still about 2% of GDP. The big test for the budget will be when we get the mid-year update and whether there's any policies to, um, to, uh, look, to look at the budget balance. Now, I mean, in view of the growth figures, I mean, that also goes to the performance of the Australian share market because the US market is hitting records and uh, all the other markets in Europe and uh, Japan and, and the UK, they're all going very strongly, but the Australian share market has been underperforming. And a lot of that would be because of concerns about company earnings and uh, concerns about interest rates. It's it's been going nowhere fast, as they say. And, and look, to some extent, even though the mining companies have done well in the last twelve months, they're still well below the peak levels of uh, what seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. You know, the BHPs, the Rios, those sorts of companies that were at astronomical valuations uh, a decade ago uh, haven't recovered, and that's a that's got a big weighting in our stock market. I guess the other thing for our stock market too is that, well, again, with while we Australians may not feel that our interest rate settings are high, you, know, you can still get two and a half, three percent risk-free basically on a uh, term deposit. And for many people, that's better than putting the money in the share market where there's an element of, of risk on your capital. So we've got this situation occurring where, uh, you know, there's an asset allocation decision from investors saying, I'll pick up the yield rather than put it into more risky stocks. You know, the issue of housing is even though the banks are still making lots of money and paying high dividends, people are concerned that if the housing sector does turn down, that they'll no longer pay those dividends and therefore the bank uh, share prices will fall. So, you know, there, there's this cautious approach still in Australia that we've got cautious policy settings, cautious investors. In the meantime, the economy just doesn't get that 
I don't know, supercharging that it really needs to get that unemployment rate you know, well below five and a half and hopefully into the 4% region. In the meantime, it'll be a case of just muddling along and uh, we're looking at about 2% growth. I think that's the bottom line. I think yeah, we'll get the odd bit of good news like we've been seeing um, perhaps in uh, infrastructure spending from the state government sector in particular. That's good news. There's no question about that. Uh, some of the LNG export volumes will be coming on stream through this uh you know, as we speak right now, the next couple of quarters, we'll see some nice growth there. That's great news as well. But we're not getting the breadth of pickup in non-mining business investment, the critical part of the economy. And as we discussed a few moments ago, the um, the consumer side's under pressure, consumer sentiment's weak, wages growth is low. And while you've got that big part of the economy muddling along, bottom line GDP muddles along with it. Sigur Kulis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. So what do you think about that, Leon? Well, it looks like, as he says, the economy is just going to keep muddling along and not growing at all at the projected 3% that the RBA and Treasury is talking about, and so uh, which means unemployment is going to stay around 5.5%. Probably go up a bit. That's right, yes. Um, okay, now the news. What's on the bill this week, Leon? Well, Gary, for a start, the International Monetary Fund has upped its forecast for global growth to 3.6% in 2017 and 3.7% in 2018, both are 0.1% higher than projections in July, well above the global growth figure in 2016 of 3.6%. According to the IMF, the fastest and most widespread growth spurt since the global recession in 2010 is on the back of stronger expansion in the first half of the year in the Eurozone, Japan and some emerging markets. That offset its lower forecast for US growth to 2.1% for 2017 and 2018. That's from earlier projections of 2.3% and 2.5%. The IMF also sharply reduced its forecast for the British economy to 1.7%, down from 1.9%. Australia's GDP has been forecast to grow at 2.2%. 2%, a sharp reduction from its projection six months ago of 3%, and this was attributed to bad weather at the start of the year. Slower growth in Australia, the US, and the US is more than compensated by growth from China, which is performing better than expected with easy credit and massive investment, and growth in Japan and the Eurozone. So that's looking okay, but it's patchy. Gary? Yeah, much of the blame for Australia's lacklustre showing is being aimed at our lack of government policies clear enough to encourage business investment. I think there's a point there. Now, the United Kingdom is setting out contingency plans for it leaving the European Union without a deal in place. With Brexit talks resuming, British Prime Minister Theresa May has told Parliament that Britain must be prepared for the worst. She said, in her words, real and tangible progress have been made in Brexit talks, but the UK must be prepared that it would emerge from the talks with no deal. She confirmed the UK would still be subject to the rulings of the European Court of Justice during the planned two-year transition period after Britain leaves the EU in March 2019. Now, Britain and the EU have until March 2019 to negotiate a deal, but the talks have stalled over the question of how much the UK will pay in the divorce bill. And Ms May also unveiled white papers that she said set out steps to, in her words, minimise disruption for business and travellers. One of them, on customs after Brexit, foreshadows legislation creating new standalone systems for the UK and ensure value-added tax and excise laws continue to be functioning if a country leaves the block in 2019 without a deal. And a white paper published by Leon Fox's Department for International Trade will see Britain pursuing negotiations with our countries during the transition period, but it won't be able to bring those agreements into the other countries into effect for trade agreements until the period is over, probably in 2021. Altogether, it's a very grim outlook, isn't it? Not good at all. This pr prospect of Britain emerging with no 
possible deal is said by the economists to be the worst possible scenario. Yeah, and it looks as though there's no change of that. That's right. Now, Australian consumer confidence has picked up with the ANZ Roy Moore Consumer Confidence Index rising 0.4% to 138 in the week ending the 8th of October. And despite this, the survey shows consumers are still feeling under pressure with sentiment towards economic conditions falling slightly. At the same time, views towards current as well as future financial conditions improve. But the Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment shows consumer confidence rising 3 0.6% to 101.4 in October from 97.9 in September. And that means opt- optimists now outnumber the pessimists, and that's for the first time in a while. A long time. Nice to see optimism, despite the dark predictions about the future of the housing market. That's right. That's right. Now, Australian business conditions have risen since their fall last month and are now holding at levels just a little below the peaks experienced prior to the GFC, which is almost three times the long-run average. The latest National Australia Bank Business Survey has them holding steady at 14 inches index points, well above the long-run average of five. Business confidence has edged up two, rising 2 points to seven following the sharp deterioration of last month. The construction industry is leading the way for business conditions thanks to a large backlog of housing work across Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane and publicly funded infrastructure projects. It had the highest reading, although other sectors weren't far behind. But the big concern, according to the survey, was retail. Conditions there are in negative territory and trending lower. And then Amazon's looming over that seemed very That is very, very bad. And of course, last week we had the retail figures and they were down, down, minus 0.6. Yeah, and of course there's a crisis at Myers. That's right, indeed, indeed. (laughs) Solly lose on the warpath. That's right, that's right. Now, unions have lost their appeal against penalty rates cuts brought down by the Fair Work Commissions. Two unions, United Voice and Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association, had challenged the Commission's decision, arguing it failed to take into account how the cuts would affect the lowest paid workers. But the federal court ruled that the commission had met its legal obligation when it's handed down its decision in February to cut Sunday and public holiday penalty rates for full-time and part-time workers. And federal court judge Morty Bromberg ruled that there had been no jurisdictional error when the commission made its decision. It does hurt some workers, that's obvious, but it also maintains employment. uh, And since most of those affected like to be part-timers, keeping employment levels up is probably the better choice. Well, yes, but it will keep wages growth at the low level. Yeah, hasn't, they haven't moved much in a decade, have they? And of course, as we see from the Consumer Confidence Index, that goes to that. It that does. affects consumer confidence. Now, the Draft Productivity Commission reporting to the goods and services tax carve-up between the states has recommended keeping the formula with some changes. The report has recommended keeping the horizontal fiscal equalisation system to determine how GST revenue is distributed, but it says it needs to be adjusted to take into account the changing economic fortunes of states and territories. And the report says the GST distribution is in their words, beyond comprehension by the public and poorly understood by most within government. A case in point is Western Australia, which is now struggling with the downturn of the mining industry. The Commission says equity should remain the heart of the uh, House Horizontal Fiscal Equalisation System, but it should aim to provide states with the fiscal capacity to provide a reasonable level of services. And rather than bringing everyone up to the fiscal standard of the strongest state, there should be a more practical objective of, in their words, reasonable equalisation. And the issue will be thrashed out the Council of Federal financial relations this month and I imagine be quite a debate Gary because it means some states might have to give up their GST carve up to compensate for Western Australia. Yeah and uh, that's not going to charm anybody. I think also Victoria and New South Wales are claiming they don't get their fair share so you know this is quite an issue. Now 
Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg has raised concerns from business with his suggestion the government might back away from the Finkel Report's clean energy target. Mr Frydenberg said the falling cost of renewables and innovation in the sector makes government intervention with a clean energy subsidy unnecessary. And in a speech to the Australian Financial Review's National Energy Summit in Sydney, he said uh, was wind, solar and renewable storage on a, were on a declining cost curve. And his observations are critical because a clean energy target is the only one of the Finkel Review's 50 recommendations that the government hasn't yet accepted. And a government decision has been put on hold for the last few months with the issue causing serious division inside the coalition and it's causing serious concerns inside business. That's right, yeah, and the government's fragile majority has been made more difficult by the resignation of Nick Xenophon. That's right. He was an independent, but he was a dealmaker. That's right, and uh, you've got the High Court hearings now going on into what's going to be happening with Barnaby Joyce. And it looks sort of fairly dark for Barnaby. Indeed it does. Let's just watch that space. Now, engineering group Worley Parsons has moved into the UK's oil and gas market in the North Sea. It's acquired Amec Foster Wheelie's UK oil and gas assets for $303 million. And Worley Parsons says it will fund the acquisition by raising $322 million at $13 a share, representing an 8.7% discount to Friday's closing price of $14.24. And the firm says... The acquisitions will be earnings per share accretive in the first year and it represents a strong entry into the UK North Sea as a profitable market leader. And the deal would boost Worley Parsons earnings and accelerate its efforts to build a global business offering maintenance, modifications and operations. Yeah, good outfit, Worley Parsons. That's right. Now, Australia's second biggest hotel operator, Mantra Group, has confirmed receiving a $1.195 billion takeover offer from the Paris-based hotel giant Accor. Accor is a company behind the Ibis, Mercure and Novotel hotel brands. Mantra told the stock exchange Aircor had made an indicative non-binding proposal to acquire the group at $3.96 a share or $4.02 per share, less the financial fiscal dividend that had already been paid and including a potential special dividend. Mantra said the discussions are incomplete. It said Accor had been granted access to due diligence to, in their words, determine if a transaction can be agreed and recommended unanimously by the Mantra board. Now, what's interesting there, Gary, is that a takeover of Mantra would combine Australia's two biggest hotel operators. It would create Australia's biggest hotel chain, covering a dozen brands, over 300 hotels and more than 50,000 rooms. Yeah, Accor is a giant, isn't it? That's right. Right around the world. That's right. Now, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia has been hit with a massive class action by shareholders angry about the drop in the CBA share price following charges that the bank breached anti-money laundering and terrorism finance laws. Law firm Morris Blackburn and litigation funder IMF Bentham filed a statement of claim in the federal court in Melbourne. The CBA board has been accused of knowing about the potential breaches in the second half of 2005-15 and failing to inform shareholders for two years. The CBA had already confirmed that its board was aware of the breaches in the second half of 2015 but chose to say nothing to the ASX until the 4th of August 2017. And when the Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Centre, or Austrac's legal proceedings against the CBA became public, CBA shares dropped from an intraday high of $84.69 on the 3rd of August to an opening price of $80.11 on the 7th of August. And the class action is on behalf of shareholders who bought CBA shares between the 1st of July 2015 and the 3rd of August 2017. And National Head of Class Actions at Morris Blackburn, Andrew Watson, said shareholders deserve to be compensated for the significant drop in the share price and CBA says it intends to vigorously contest the claim. So once again CBA's got another stain on its reputation. Absolutely. Because of the 
business. And absolutely. And I, I'm almost starting to feel sorry for them. <laughs> well, it could mean a lot of money because, I mean, we're talking thousands of shareholders here. Yeah, and that's not going to do the shareholders any good either. No. And finally, Gary, with Amazon about to launch here, Australia Post has moved into that space with a delivery service for local retailers. Australia's Post Shipter offers free delivery from over 40 of Australia's biggest online stores, including Booktopia, Maya, Target, Toys R Us, Cotton On and Shopo. Memberships cost $9.95. It offers free delivery on any purchase of $25 and over at participation stores. It also offers free delivery of one Deliveroo order each month. And Australia Post Acting Manager and Group CEO Christine Corbett said the service had been launched just in time for Christmas. So it's interesting that Australia Post is now competing against Amazon. Yeah, very interesting. And they're following a lead that was in Singapore. Amazon's really uh, having problem with a against a local carrier like Auspost. That's, well, that's going to be very interesting to watch. I think it's, and of course, Auspost has got a good infrastructure. Very, it's very good. Yeah, thanks to Ahmed Hafahur. That's right. All the issues about his payment. Yeah, he did a good job. That's right. But and he got paid a matzo. That's right. That's right. And that's it for us this week. And next week, we're going to be talking to Marcelo Silvia. He's the founder of uh, DTS, or Digital Transformation Score, which is helping businesses move into the digital space and improve their customer service and offer them a completely automated service. That's the way the world's going and you need, you're going to need help. And that's it for us this week. In the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.